welcome to the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast, brought to you by the Southern Arizona Office. My name is Matt Gubard. And I'm Charlotte Hart. Today we talk with Lloyd Marciantua, who is the superintendent for Hubble Trading Post, uh, but he's also a trained archaeologist. So we're going to talk a little bit about Hubble Trading Post, where it is, uh, what you can see if you visit there. Um, but then we're going to talk to Lloyd about what it means uh, to be a Hopi person working for the National Park Service and how uh, his background affects his job as a superintendent and as uh, an archaeologist. Um, we're going to spend some time uh, talking about that uh, during the interview and afterwards, and then we're going to answer a listener question. Um, so let's get to the interview. Hey, Lloyd. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Lloyd. Good. Hey, Charlotte. So uh, just to start off, uh, can you tell us a little bit about where Hubble Trading Post is uh, and why it was established? Uh, Hubble Trading Post is um, located in the north uh, eastern part of Arizona, and um, its establishment was basically because of uh, the Hubble family, um, Lorenzo uh, Hubble, who um, built an empire basically in the Southwest, um, developing multiple trading posts. And the one thing that he's uh, really well known for is his hospitality and his willingness to help uh, Native folks. And the other thing that he's um, been noted for is the uh, Ganado Red style of um, rug weaving that he incorporated or requested of the local uh, ladies who wove in this area. And um, through that, um, he built, uh, or at least, um, I guess, um, built a recognition for rug weaving in this area. And from there, you know, it just kind of like um, um, spread and, and a lot of the products that, uh, well, particularly the rugs that were woven in this area were um, shipped off to uh, many different places. And through that, you know, just the name itself and um, the people that he brought out here, he was also a politician. And so he was pretty well connected. And um, a lot of uh, noted politicians um, came this way, visited him, and also um, um, he provided um, tours out to uh, other places, other reservations, particularly Hopi for some of the dances. And so, you know, there's a number of reasons why um, this was set aside. And um, when when the family decided to move on, they wanted, um, they wanted to keep this as a living trading post. So currently we try to do, mimic what what had what had gone on in the past so so it's actually an operating training post then yes are there any other uh national park units like that not that i know of nothing like this that i know of uh we have a trader in the trading post we've had numerous trading traders excuse me traders that have gone through um uh, well, that have been hired um, by um, um, our cooperating association, and so you know we can they continue that. And right now we're trying to establish a mentoring program where um, 
we do we develop or at least WMPA develops uh new traders so that this can carry um on. Hmm. Interesting. So for for our listeners that um maybe don't uh know exactly where the park is, uh it's located on the Navajo reservation. And if you don't live on the reservation it, it can be kinda hard to get there. It's a sort of a remote place. Um, what do you think visitors should know as far as how much time they should plan if they come to the park or what time of year is best to be there? Well, you know, it's um, it's open um, throughout the year, and uh, the best time for for me personally is probably in the spring um, because, you know, we have things that are blooming. We have a lot of activity going on, and um, I think, for me personally, yeah, that's the best time of the year. Also, the fall is, is not too bad. But uh, this time of the year, depending on how much uh, moisture we get, we can get a lot of mosquitoes, so it's not too fun to be walking outdoors. <laughs> um, but aside from that, any time of the year is fine. Um, you know, just um, to mention that we do observe our daylight savings time. Um, be prepared for if you if you're wanting to take a tour, um, you could spend it. Um, maybe about two hours here. Okay, great. And Western National Parks Association does an annual rug sale, is that right? No, it's the Friends Group. And um, of late, they have been um, starting to do the rug rug sales or the auctions off-site. Oh, okay. But we do have rugs in the wear room or in the rug room, excuse me, um, that are for sale. Um but they are kind of looking into possibly uh, having their own auction, but that's been talked about for a number of years, but nothing has ever transpired. Okay. Great. So uh, you're the superintendent, which for people that don't know, that means that you're in charge of all of the operations at the park. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what the role of the superintendent is in managing cultural resources and uh, archaeological sites? Well, for me personally, I mean, I think every superintendent has their own ideal. But for me personally, uh, having that archaeological background that um, um, Matt mentioned, um, it's trying to maintain the structures as they are. And um, if anything should happen, um, trying to repair them so that um, there are really no obvious um, clues that anyone has done any work on them. But also, in the same token, documenting everything that that we're doing to these resources, and so that goes hand in hand in trying to find people that can do this type of work. And it's kind of difficult when your funding is limited. And you know, I think most parks um, um, have that issue. But there are uh, resource parks that do have the luxury, uh, so to speak, of having programs developed. So that they are really focused on preserving sites, and unfortunately, uh, here at Elbow Trading Post, we've um, um, kind of um, not developed anything like that. But I'm trying to start a little bit of a program, but it's um, you know just a startup thing. And so, one of the things that uh, I want to start doing is really documenting of um, um, historic buildings and making sure that we are documenting everything that we're doing to them. Great. Um, so you, you sort of uh, answered my next question, but um, do you think that being a professional archaeologist uh, gives you a perspective um, that is beneficial to your role? And do you think that that is a perspective that 
maybe a superintendent with a different professional background uh, may not be able to tap into? Yes, uh, you know, I think it is beneficial depending on what your background is. And, and I think it's always good to kind of look at those avenues when um, upper management is hiring individuals to fill management positions. Because, I, you know, things can go by the wayside and other things can happen where if you're not careful, you know, um, yeah, there's been numerous um, um, examples out there. Um, and if you kind of just look at uh, some of the recent incidents that have been revealed, you, know, you probably get an understanding of, of things related to um, doing compliance and, and consultation and things like that. So, you know, having that background, it's a, it's a plus, but not to say that it can't be learned. And, and right now, I think the service is actually trying to put emphasis on that. Right, right. And again, just for our listeners who might not know, um, superintendents often have uh, really diverse professional backgrounds, and the Park Service hires, uh, you know, people from to do any number of jobs from, I don't know, like a diesel mechanic up into, a, you know, a mountaineer. Um, so a superintendent could be hired uh, because they have leadership qualities, but they may have any number of sort of different professional qualifications. Uh, and um, as you alluded to, oftentimes they'll they'll bring their experiences and their past jobs in, into their role as a superintendent. So um, you're also a member of the Hopi tribe. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little about Hopi, um, uh, particularly where it's located? Well, Hopi, the Hopi tribe is smack dab in the middle of the Navajo Reservation, pretty much. We're also in uh, the northern part of Arizona. Um, we have, um, how many mesas do we have? I don't think I can say that all of them are mesas, but uh, I think we've got one, two, three, seven or so. I can't, you know. Anyway, there's a number of mesas out there. Um, I grew up uh, in the village of Olaraibi, raised by my grandparents, and um you know, having that, um, I, I guess, being lucky that I had grandparents who um, uh, were still alive at that time and and raised me in a more of a traditional way that um, there are nuances that I had to deal with in getting into this profession, profession uh, my, pr my prior pro profession, that is. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I don't know, it's, it, just kind of a life way that um, we we've gone through and things that we have to be cautious of and I hate using the word taboo um, but you know do we just have to be uh, respectful of things is a better word for it and um, and being cautious of all of the things that um, we do to things while we're out there uh, but you know being a Hopi and um, and particularly um, knowing that in this region that there are footprints that were left by our ancestors, it it gives me pleasure to work in places like this because you know everywhere I go it's basically home because my my ancestors um, you know walked through these places they built dwellings and left their marks in the in these areas and um, you know it's been a pleasure um, working for the Park Service because it's uh, given me the opportunity to preserve my history. That, that's really interesting, and that's, I think, a perspective that those of us uh, who um, don't have that background uh, maybe struggle to understand sometimes. Um, how do you think uh, your connection with ancestral sites 
in the Park Service has affected or, or influenced your job, either as an archaeologist or a superintendent? Well, I wouldn't say um, influence too much, but, you know, I, and I don't know if there's a word for it, but I, I think that um, just like I said, um, um, being raised in a traditional setting and, and the things that we were taught about these places and, you know, knowing that these, well, at least hearing about these places that existed out there and then actually seeing that these places still exist um that that you know they're they're basically alive and well that you know it um it brings some um wholeness to me because um you know you hear about things and then you're actually out there to um be there in these places with with uh you know i guess uh, basically our ancestor spirits and such um may sound hokey but um that's you know how i feel and you know, just having that sense of feeling, uh, it does, I guess, somewhat influence you in how you um, approach things. Yeah, I don't think it sounds hokey at all. It, it must be a very powerful thing to experience. Yeah. Um, so, do do your uh, do your beliefs as a Hopi person have they ever conflicted with um, your professional responsibilities, uh, particularly as an archaeologist? And if so, how how do you balance that? Well, it's difficult um, initially. Um, and so, you know, when I first got into um, the program at uh, Northern Arizona University, I had to um, actually talk to my grandparents um, because my my father didn't want to answer me. Um, but in talking to my grandparents, they basically said, "Just so long you're not doing any harm purposefully, um, and that you know you pray to." To, to whoever is living there before you do anything that you're not there to do any harm. You're just basically doing your job. And um, one of the things that I really had a problem with was excavations because um, I've always found that, you know, there's been so much already excavated that there's so much that hasn't been looked at, researched, that they're just sitting on shelves that we don't need to do any more excavation. Unless you know we're, we're we're doing some recovery stuff where something is being um, affected and we have to do some mitigation work and you know that is somewhat justifiable, but even then I I still question that. Sure. Yeah, I think um, being a frontline ranger um, for a long time, it it was always a an interesting conversation that I would have with visitors because they're. Um, the, the popular concept of an archaeologist is not the preservation archaeologist. It's, you know, the archaeologist who's um, going out and, and doing those compliance digs and, and always excavating. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it was always a nice educational moment, um, but it, I was always surprised that, you know, most of our work is not that and, and that the popular concept is very different. Mm -hmm. So... One of the things that the National Park Service ha has always tried to do and and um, has tried, I think, harder to do in the last several decades is to incorporate uh, Native American perspectives into an interpretation of the archaeology and the history uh, of Park Service units, particularly those um, here in Arizona. But honestly, there's a lot of room for improvement. So how do you think that the National Park Service could do a better job of representing both ancestral Native American people and uh, living people? 
Um, I think what um, Park Service needs to do is really invest in bringing Native folks into the service and having a few folks to do our interpretation of of our people's places. Um, I think that's something that we've struggled with. We've talked about it a lot, but to me, nothing has ever really been done about doing something like that. So in areas like this, sorry, my voice is giving up. In areas like this where you have a setting in in uh, in a Navajo reservation, we have primarily Navajos that are employed here, and particularly at um, Hubble, Canyon de Chez, and Navajo National Monument. Hubble is a good example or is a good place to have Navajos because the Navajos had that connection to the Hubble family um, more so than the other tribes, but you know there was still connection to Hopi, Zuni, and other Puebloan groups, and even the um, uh, Apache and and um, I think some of the uh, southern tribes as well. But you know, having at least a few folks to talk about things, I think it makes it more personal. And um, you know, even visitors that come to the parks. And when I started my career. Um, in Flagstaff, you know, you're out there repairing walls and such or documenting and drawing maps and you yeah, have visitors going by and they, you know, um, ask questions that a person who has that background or, or grew up in uh, on a reservation or village can answer some of those questions where an uh, inter-ranger who is, um, I don't like to use um well, I'm going to have to use it anyway. Anglo may not have that perspective and can't fully answer a question. And so, and then you hear things like that where, well, how come you guys don't have any natives or the descendants um, doing these programs themselves? I think it makes sense for visitors to um, be able to, to hear about the sites from the people whose ancestors uh, used them. And that, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Do you see um, do you see a fundamental problem with how the Park Service um, in general runs its interpretation programs with uh, only seasonal employment for most of the frontline rangers? Uh, I do, um, but you know, it's it will, once you get into a position like this, you can understand why you would do something like that. I mean. You have seasons where you have a lot of folks coming in, you know, during the summer season, of course. Um, and so that's when you want to staff up. And right. during the winter months, you know, when it's, it, you know, people aren't going to be, especially like if you're in uh, Wopatki and places where it's a little cooler that you're not going to have a ton of folks going through there. But then again, you still have folks going through. And so you should consider maybe bringing on um, one or two people that are um, there on a permanent basis. So, Native American tribal governments and also individuals uh, have sometimes been at odds with federal archaeologists, particularly over issues regarding the treatment of ancestral places uh, and ancestral people, meaning human remains and right. objects. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of times when you hear about that in the news, um, it's often uh, a very negative and sort of contentious situation. but I think here in the Southwest, there can also be examples of um, cooperation 
Can you think of any examples um, of projects that you've been involved in that have had a, a positive uh, and a mutually beneficial result for both archaeologists and tribal folks? Um, well, there's a few of them. I know that, but I think um, for the most, most part, um, um, well, let me um, go ahead and uh, mention, you know, some of the, uh, well, at least one example where um, we, the park went through a Niagara process um, in Flagstaff, and I thought that the Flagstaff um, folks should be a model for the rest of the Park Service, where they did their own NAC, but they didn't use the regional folks um, because going through the regional realms, they're so inclusive, it makes the work more cumbersome. And there's there's just so much that you have to do when you utilize that help, which is not really help. And so um, when they took it upon themselves, they only invited a number of folks that they really felt had affiliation to the park. And so I think working through the avenue, I, even though it was somewhat contentious, there's questions um, asked after the fact, but you know nothing else really developed from that. And I think that was a good example. And I think and that developed from the fact that they also looked at the um, Coconino Forest, who did something similar. And um, you know, I think you know, as far as Nagpur goes, <laughs> we have. Um, Different ways of dealing with that, and that you know, we, we it just makes it more complicated, um, and we do that um, to ourselves. Um, but the other things that um, one other thing um, that has been really positive um, between archaeologists um, was was the development of, of the Vanishing Treasures Initiative. I think that was a huge thing where um, that enabled people like myself to get into a program working with uh, the Hopi tribe to uh, bring in Hopi people to actually be a part of that program and even get employment through that process or, or that program. And, um, you know, and, and working working with the archaeologists there and then going through a program to become an archaeologist, you know, I think that benefited um, not just the Park Service, but the, the, the tribes and um, the archaeologists um, that worked in the area. Okay. And, and just so our listeners know, NAGPRA is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and it's a, a law that creates a process um, wherein uh, representatives of the federal government will consult with representatives from tribes to repatriate human remains uh, and objects that may have been removed during archaeological projects. Uh, and oftentimes, those remains and objects will then be um, reburied in a way that is a, appropriate uh, to the tribes. Um, so I, I think those are, are, are really good examples, and it sounds like uh, maybe there's a couple of take-homes here, which would be more inclusion for tribal people uh, in the parks um, and in positions like like, archeo- like an archaeologist, um, but also maybe uh, improved communication between um, archaeologists and, and uh, tribal folks as well. That's correct. And, you know, what you mentioned, you know, it's improved quite a bit. And, you know, if you look at some of the reports that were generated um, early on, you know, there was there were there there were instances where um, even though an archaeologist consulted with, they didn't use that information um, to put in their report. 
And after the fact, certain things came up and they you know, that should have been included in the reports because, you know, they aligned with what they they told them. And so, you know, um, putting using that information would have been good to get things going early on. And, um, you know, we wouldn't be running into some of these issues that we do have now and trying to um, retract from um, previous um, claims and things like that. Sure. So that is all the questions that I have. Uh, is there anything else um, either of you want to expand on? I guess uh, following up on the idea that we should um, hire more Native folks, um, are there any educational initiatives out there that we could focus on to help get us to that place? Educational initiatives. I, you know, I think there are opportunities within the Park Service um, that um, we don't tap into, um, and creating avenues. I, I, other minority groups have um, developed certain um, 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 career paths, and, and and are able to get into those, and they're being developed for like uh, their their their. Um, what do you call it? What do you call that? Uh, uh, their their his, their history, or, or or I can't put it into words. But anyway, where 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 they're connected to, and right. so um, so developing something like that for native peoples, it would you know just be a matter of generating or 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 putting that out there and hoping that somebody at upper upper management um, can uh, take that on and and go with it. And you know that would really benefit um, the Park Service in a, in a huge way. And this is not just in Arizona; I think nationwide. I mean, every place, just about every place that has been set aside, has some connection to some Native population in their area. And so we're missing out a lot because we don't interpret those connections. And so um, trying to um, enable folks to 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 engage in something like that is something that is probably a bit more far-reaching, and but it's got to start somewhere. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Lloyd Masayamtoa, the superintendent of Hubble Trading Post National Historic Site. Um, thank you so much for your time and uh, and talking with us. It's been my pleasure. So I think it's really important to reiterate a lot of the take-home points that Lloyd gave us at the end of the interview. You know, I'm a white woman from Phoenix, and I might be an archaeologist, but I don't have that same background that a Native American would. Having those multivocal viewpoints is so important for management decisions at our park units. It is, and uh, a really good example of that is at Seagate National Monument. Uh, several years ago, we were um, developing museum exhibits. And we were looking at artifacts and trying to figure out how to interpret those objects to the public. And we had a lot of uh, archaeologists um, with different specializations who were involved in those discussions, but we also invited uh, tribal people as well. And interestingly, uh, their interpretations were very different from um, the ones that were created by the archaeologists, but they were really insightful, and it was very helpful to get a different perspective, and it really helped us to kind of come up with uh, interpretations um, that were uh, not only more inclusive, but 
some ways um, provided more information about the object itself and, and different perspectives on it. Um, so it's, I think, really important uh, to note that archaeologists don't have all of the answers. And the way to do a good science in archaeology is to elicit as many different perspectives as possible and consulting with uh, tribal folks um, who have a lot of traditional knowledge that archaeologists don't have access to is a really critical part uh, of developing a good interpretation for an object or a site. So now is the time when we would answer listener questions. Uh, we still don't have any, so please do uh, use that contact us button on our um, on our podcast webpage where the podcast is hosted, and let us know um, what you're thinking and and if you have any questions that we would like you'd like us to answer. Um, but so in the meantime, we thought that we would um, highlight some of the um, internal um, ways that the Park Service is trying to address inclusion and re relevancy. Right, so one of those groups uh, is called the Council for Indigenous Relevance, Communication, Leadership, and Ex Excellence, uh, known as CIRCLE. And that's a group that was formed in 2013, um, and it's a resource for helping uh, employees in the Park Service to understand more about uh, Native American um, issues. Uh, if you're interested in getting more information on it, uh, you can contact the CIRCLE group at uh, CIRCLE at NPS.gov. That's C-I-R-E-L-E at NPS.gov. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, join us again when we talk with Angeline Bass of the University of New Mexico and Doug Porter of the University of Vermont. They're both academic partners who um, help us in historic preservation in our monuments. The National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast is a production of the Southern Arizona Office of the National Park Service. Our artwork was designed by Laura Varen Burkhart. Justin Mossman composed our music. We look forward to hearing from you. Matt and I will be with you again next month.